Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mind Body Green's beauty podcast, Clean Beauty School. I am your host and Mind Body Green's beauty director, Alexandra Engler. On this podcast, we explore beauty through the lens of well being. And on today's episode, we are going to be diving in to sustainability in the beauty industry and creative ways that we are looking to innovate the space. And to do so, I have on one of the founders of Common Air. Uh, This is a new-ish skincare brand that I have recently become obsessed with. Uh, They are doing such creative things in the field, and I, I... I love their beauty philosophy and I I honestly, I just love what they are doing. And so I'm just really excited to dive in to, you know, thinking outside the box when it comes to uh, coming up with creative solutions for our sustainability problem. But, uh, you know, I won't ramble on any longer and I will invite our guest on. Like I said, she is a founder of Common Air. Welcome, Angela Ubias. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm really excited to just get right into it. Talk sustainability and beauty and, and all the fun things. All of the fun things. Yes, I agree. So uh, I, I always like to start off these episodes by allowing the audience to get to know you a little bit better. We had the pleasure of having that dinner a few weeks ago. So I, I kind of know a little bit of your backstory, but I would love to hear a little bit more and hear it from you and let our audience hear it as well. What's your background and what was your journey into the beauty space? Yeah, I'm happy to get into it. So I have been in beauty as of about the time that we met a few weeks ago for officially 10 years, a decade. I am certainly aging myself a bit. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride for me. I think I have had a very non-traditional path into beauty. Um, I, I stumbled into my first role in manufacturing and operations um, by happenstance. I had been a buyer in beauty uh, and fashion for a few high-end boutiques in Austin, Texas, which is my hometown, um, for a couple of years post-undergrad. And I kind of decided I didn't want to do that anymore. So I was looking for a pivot, didn't know what it would be at all. Um, And then found an ad on Craigslist of all places. Mind you, this is 10 years ago. So Craigslist was still a destination, at least in the Austin area, back in the day to look for legitimate work. Um, And so there was a beauty lab and manufacturer that was kind of in my backyard that was hiring for a sales and marketing position. I knew I didn't have direct experience, but it sounded really interesting to me. And I didn't understand fully what a manufacturer or lab did for beauty because I was always just the end consumer. Um, And so long story short, I apply for this role woefully underqualified. Just again, iterating that out of the gate. I go into this interview I sit down with like one of the founders of the company and I somehow charm her. Her name's Mary Berry. Um, So shout out to Mary Berry with a wonderful name. Um, So I somehow charm Mary into hiring me for this role. She calls me maybe an hour later and was like, I don't know why I even let you walk out of the door. Like, it just feels like a good fit. Um, And so I'm ecstatic. I don't think you mentioned that to me. I love that. Yeah, it was uh, it was surprising. And I remember getting the call and then I, I'm very close to my grandparents. And I remember calling my grandfather to be like, I got the job. And he was like, oh, wow, 
well, okay, you're going to do that then for a little bit. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to see this through. Um, and then I just fell in love with the industry. It was a really small team when I started. The uh, former name of the company was Texas Beauty Labs. And um, there are about 10 of us, maybe nine, from like founder to like janitor, basically. Um, and, you know, she had kind of like a handful of accounts at that time. Um, she was making a lot of like spa back end, some retail products. And I just dove in and was just like eyes wide open open and like wonderment of seeing like emulsions come together in the lab and like the science behind it and then also like the geeky big equipment behind it and that's just when I really fell in love with product development and that's where I spent a lot of my career. Okay and then you know uh, Comet Air is a clean brand and I, I want to ask even before Common Air, you know, what was your relationship with quote unquote clean beauty? And like, how was your path into this area of the beauty industry? Yeah. So clean for me, when I got into manufacturing and running the lab, it was just kind of the default of the way like the ethos of that lab. And so I kind of didn't know any difference. It was when and it was during that time that I realized there was a difference in the way that we were doing things at Texas Beauty Labs to the way like the products that I was picking up at the counter at Mac or at, you know, any of these like big anything owned by Estee Lauder, or, you know, L'Oreal, whomever it is. Right. Um, and so that was kind of like very early on, I realized that there was a distinction there. And then it was just a matter of learning more and more about it to understand like what those differences are, educate myself in a really interesting way as a consumer that has this like, you know, line of sight into things that most of us don't. Um, and so when it came to be that, like, I wanted to start Common Air, um, and had met with my co founder, um, you know, we can get into that journey in a second. But when it came to that point in time, you know, clean beauty was just it was the default in my mind. And it was the way I thought everybody should be formulating and creating, um, especially when we got into like the science of it. And there were just so many alternatives to some of these like more toxic ingredients um, that were used in like more mainstream or more conventional brands. Yeah. You know, let's um, let's fast forward then to Common Air. Uh Tell me about the formation of this brand and when you decided like, okay, I'm ready for this. I'm ready to start my own thing. Yeah. So at that time, I was about seven and a half, maybe seven uh, years into running the lab at Texas Beauty Labs at that point. You know, I had helped build about 60 plus uh, clean and indie beauty brands, some really big ones. I am like lock and key, so I can't say who, unfortunately, but let's just say I was uh, creating the top 40 hits in beauty on everyone's top shelves for a really long time uh, in the background. And I loved it. And it was such an amazing opportunity to learn and grow so many of these brands. Um, but I was really bored. It just, I had line of sight into everything that was coming down the pipeline for the next four to five years. And on the innovation front, it felt just uninspired. Everyone was just ripping each other off. Everything like had the same aesthetic, you know? And so I was feeling a bit disenchanted, if I'm being completely honest, uh, with beauty at that time. And um, a colleague of mine uh, through networking met my now co-founder, Carrie. Um, and so the two of them chatted and she was like, you know who you need to be talking to. 
uh, about starting something like innovative and hyper sustainable, my friend Angela, who's been doing product development over here in the background for a very long time. Um, and so my friend tells me about the two of them meeting and I'm like, heck no, I have no desire to be a founder right now. I don't even know if I want to stay in beauty. Again, it was kind of like when I came into beauty where I was looking for a career pivot. I, it was like that same kind of sweet spot that was happening. Um, and she's like, you know, my friend, bless her heart, right? She's like, Angela, shut up. Take the call. Worst case scenario. You you know what I mean? Like it, it, nothing comes of it, but at least you, you know, kind of took a risk in that way. So I roll my eyes. Um, and I, if you know me, I have a very expressive face. So it was a lot of eye rolling. And so I roll my eyes, take the call on FaceTime with my co-founder. And it is just, we joke about it now as being a love match um, because she came from the opposite side of the industry. She was, um, you know, doing a lot of like marketing. It was all like the brand Ford stuff. Um, she had this like really strong finance background and, you know, her MBA. And I was just over here, like all of my on the job training has been, um, or rather all my experience has been this on the job training. And so it just felt like this perfect complementary skill sets coming together. Um, and she saw what I had noticed in my experience in the industry, right? Which is um, that the next wave of change coming through was going to be in how we, uh, in the beauty industry and personal care approached packaging and how there was room for innovation there um, outside of just innovation on formula. And so that's kind of where that, you know, meeting of the minds started. And, you know, the rest is kind of history with Common Air. Yeah. So cool. And I feel like I, I can't wait to get into the sustainability and of it all and um, use that as a diving off point. Because like I said at the beginning of this, you know, I think what you guys are doing is truly creative and innovative. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, how, how your mind works when you are developing, um, you know, when you were developing the brand and like when you're developing things that are coming in the pipeline. But before we get to that, I really quickly want to ask a few things that I think set up the conversation nicely. And and the first one is, I, I believe that we all have a very unique relationship with beauty. And I think that our individual relationships with it form around, you know, these formative memories that we have. And I feel like everyone I talk to in the beauty industry has these sorts of moments that they can kind of look back on, whether it's childhood, whether it's like their teens or whatever, where they can be like, wow, you know, that experience or those memories or that really shaped how I view beauty nowadays. Do you have anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I think I probably have two instances. The first being when I was younger, it was growing up, I look at both of my grandmothers and my family as like my original beauty idols. They are both the epitome of glamour in very different ways. Um, but outside of just, you know, it was amazing to see them with the creams and the potions and all of the things that they're, you know, applying. Um, what I think looking back now was really resonant even as a kid was I saw these two powerful women to me, like even at a young age, I recognize that. So to see these two powerful women take their own time and, you know, it was self-care before we even called it self-care, right? But to take out, carve out this personal time for themselves to, you know, emerge from the bathroom or the vanities looking glamorous and um, have that quiet time away from all the running kids and grandkids and all the things because I come from a massive family. Um, 
to me, that was like a really, it's a really fond memory that I look back on and reflect a lot now as I even, you know, I don't have any children yet. uh, But even as I look at the way I talk about self care and finding time for yourself with my nieces, um, you know, my oldest niece and I, she's now 10. And we have little spa days when, you know, when she'll, uh, we'll have sleepovers and I'll, you know, and it's, skincare that's safe for her and that sort of thing. But that feels like a tradition that I try to pass on in some way. Um, So that feels like a really formative thing for me. Um, Yeah. So I'll I'll pause there. Okay. And then the second thing I wanted to ask you is what is your beauty philosophy? Oh, that's such a good question. And I think I'm probably still figuring it out. Um, For me though, I try to remember that beauty should just be self-expression and it's fun at the end of the day. And I think so many of us as founders, as consumers, as creators, we get so bogged down in so many serious components of beauty and, you know, even being such a mission driven brand like Common Air, it's still fun. It's still beauty, you know, and And I think that, yeah, that's it. It's fun. It's self-expression. I love that. And that is something that I have been trying to think about a lot lately and just, I don't know, try to bring the joy back into it and a lot of the stuff that I'm doing because you're so right. Like, I feel like we all get so serious and uh, I don't know, it can feel very like self-important a lot of the times. And I think bringing some levity back into this, even when we are talking about serious things is... I don't know. I think it's good. I think there's like value in just doing something because it's joyful, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I think even when I think about Common Air and I knew that we were so hyper-focused on sustainability and innovation and and inclusivity, um, you know, those are three big pillars to stand on for brand ethos. Uh, But I still want it to feel indulgent and lighthearted and um, like a, like a very sweet moment in time. I don't ever want it to feel like this daunting thing or, you know, we as a brand are preaching at you about this is the way you do sustainability. Cause that's not fun for anybody. Right. And again, at the end of the day, it's beauty. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into the sustainability of it all. Um, uh, you know, you, you were talking about that common error was founded at this time in your life where you, you felt that, you weren't seeing the innovation and the excitement that you were craving. And um, you noted that one of the areas where that was, you know, particularly glaring was packaging um, and how we package things sustainably. Uh, So I want to talk a little bit more about that moment in time. You know, what were you seeing in the industry that made you say like, we, we have to think outside the box. We have to get creative. You know, we have to think of something else. Like, yeah. What was happening that made you, uh, grab, you know, grab onto say, sustainability as this huge thing that you wanted to tackle and, you know, remedy. Yeah. That's, it's such a good question. And for me, I'm sure it was some level of a dismal statistic, right. That I saw and, and just had that aha moment of, oh my gosh, I'm contributing to this many pounds of like billions of pounds of plastic waste like out in the environment. And, you know, it was also a a specific time where I was looking at my nieces and thinking about like uh, me starting a family one day and kind of like, is this the, the impact 
that I want to leave behind? You know, is this the industry I want to continue to devote like my time and energy to? And if, and if yes, and the answer was yes, and there has to be a solve for it. And, um, you know, on the clean ingredient side and, you know, we had already seen at that point in time for me that shift in in the mainstream of being more open to it. We'd seen the way that that shift um, and and being more open to it, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. Um, but in that consumer shift, how that also impacted suppliers' ability to um, to innovate on materials. And so then all of that innovation was catching up and it just felt like packaging was so far behind and everything was copious amounts of plastic or, you know, really heavy glass um, that uh, or, and finishes and things in ways that would make it really hard to recycle. And it was all this like wishful thinking also around um, if this is going to be recyclable or not uh, for the end consumer. And so just thinking about all of these things kind of swirling in my head, um, as where we kind of landed on wanting to do the encapsulated skincare approach. Um, but we knew we didn't want it to be gimmicky. Um, there are definitely formulas that are coming down the pipeline that are not going to be encapsulated because it doesn't make sense for the consumer experience. It doesn't work with the format. Um, and that's okay. We're just having to innovate in different ways. And I'm really excited about the innovation, but you know, uh, and that was something that we are always new from the jump. Um, was that these capsules are going to work for specific formulas. We love the delivery system, um, but it cannot be a gimmick. Okay. So when you set out, you identify this plastic problem, right? And you, uh, how do you go about identifying different delivery methods and different packaging solutions outside of plastic because plastic is so ubiquitous in the industry. And it's like, you know, were you just able to call upon the knowledge that you had from Texas Beauty Lab? Or was it like you had to get out there and see what packaging manufacturers are doing just because like, as somebody who is deeply in the beauty industry and can appreciate when people are actually doing something innovative, it's really hard to come up with new packaging solutions and it's hard to find that sort of stuff. So like, what did that process even look like? Yeah. I mean, it's really hard, even as someone with roots as deep as mine. Right. And, and I do, and I have to preface this by saying the amount of industry contacts and knowledge that I had under my belt absolutely made a world of difference into how quickly we were able to get to market. I think, um, so I just, I like to say that out loud because if you are someone that does not have that same knowledge or that same network, it might take a little bit more time. Not to say you shouldn't do it, like absolutely go after it, but it can take more time. That said, it's still, there was such a steep learning curve uh, and reaching out to vendors, uh, you know, to say like, oh, I know you would like talk to me about this for like maybe clients before on like sustainability initiatives or new packaging material um, and all of those sorts of things, but now presented to me as a founder for Common Air. And so the journey was really wild. It was testing a lot of different um, formats for packaging. It was pushing a lot of these packaging vendors for reliable data behind these sustainability claims. 
to say like, wait, I want to see a report on biodegradability claims, or I want to see a report on X, Y, Z. And oftentimes they're not able to provide that kind of data to you. Right. And so then that kind of started to very quickly whittle down the list. Um, and, you know, at that point in time, we can also parallel path and uh, already started moving forward with a capsule format. Um, and then we started asking that manufacturer, is there a way for us to make this uh, like for paper to be stable enough for this? Because this is such a lightweight product. Like you, you know, we like to look at sustainability really holistically so it's not just about the capsules are biodegradable okay let's throw it in plastic no it's also about you know that secondary packaging it's also about carbon footprint and emissions and you know the ingredients that are going to into it it's it's a really holistic view uh you know our, our approach to sustainability so yeah i mean it was certainly a journey and um even like the way that we ended up doing the tubes just adding a few extra layers of protection in there um to make sure that it was really insulated so that we're not sacrificing efficacy of product or longevity of product uh just for you know a sustainability claim i think the point that you brought up about how you guys approach it holistically and i think that illuminates something that I often try to talk about a lot with these sort of conversations because, you know, I think one thing that happens in in the beauty industry quite a bit, especially in the media side. So, um, you know, I take accountability for this, but, you know, we're always looking for the one solution that's eco-friendly or, you know, the best way to be eco-friendly. And it's feels very tunnel vision. Um, And I think it's important that we open up the conversation because, um, you know, a broader part of sustainability is saying like, okay, sure, you can choose glass, but then it's heavier to ship. And then, you know, X, Y, Z, and like, there can be negative repercussions with the things that you choose. and so I think it's a it's a much more like complicated equation that you kind of have to add all this stuff together. Um, so as somebody who does try to look at it from this whole encompassing picture, you know, like what sort of payoffs are you making when you're having these sorts of conversations of like, you know, wh- what's the hierarchy of sustainability for you? Like, is it the plastic problem? Is it the carbon footprint? Is it the, you know, X, Y, Z, just because this stuff, it can get complicated so fast. So like, how do you work through that? Yeah, that's a really great question. And again, like, I I think I answered another question like this earlier. I don't know that we have it perfectly or that I have a perfect way that this has worked for us. I think we've certainly made mistakes uh, along the way. But when we are looking at things, it's, it's looking at formula specific a little bit more and deciding, you know, okay, so we have this amazing formula. We, we love it. Um, we know it works in this delivery system or it doesn't. And then building out sustainability around it in that way. So is there a product that is going to make better, like more sense and global? because you're able to repurpose it. How can we encourage people to repurpose packaging instead of just recycling it? Um, Because, you know, again, going back to like the wishful cycle, like recycling bit, um, unless you're doing it the exact right way, which not everybody does, it's it's the same as putting it in the garbage bin. Um, And not a lot of consumers have a lot of education around that. So we try to, we tried and I think have 
mostly successfully um, become a destination as a brand, at least for folks to come to us and understand that they don't have to do a lot of guesswork um, in terms of how they're able to recycle it. Cause we'll provide all of that information to them. Um, but yeah, so it is, it's kind of looking through that lens of formula first and then building out uh, sustainability around that uh, in ways that are not going to, um, also require a lot of behavior change for the end consumer because when that friction point happens then we lose the opportunity to you know connect with that consumer outside of just a purchase right to me it's like losing the opportunity of you know being kind of a gateway drug to what leading a more sustainable lifestyle could be so i did have a question about consumer behavior because it is really hard to change um and it's hard to get people to um, you know, adapt their habits. So how do you approach um, getting people to try something new? Because, you know, it's, I feel like these capsules, they certainly are on the market. And, you know, they're something that are, they're, you know, somewhat known. However, people are probably much more used to just pumping out their serum, right? You know, versus doing the twist off capsule. So it's like, how are you educating people and how are you encouraging people to change their behaviors in this sort of way? And, and what challenges do you face on that journey? Yeah. So for us, interestingly enough, um, and that, and the capsule format specifically messaging that tends to work the best for us is educating less on the sustain sustainability part and more on the efficacy part that the capsule and the single dose brings. Um, and so for me, you know, for us, like, obviously, we want to get all the credit in the world for the sustainability angle. But if what pulls you in is the fact that like, hey, my vitamin C and my retinol are going to be more potent, because I'm opening up a fresh one ev with every single use versus letting it oxidize the second air hits it in a more traditional packaging. Um, that's great. And sustainability is just a byproduct. And you know what, I'm okay with that. I love that. And let's, um, you know, just to ask a follow up on that is, you know, I, I understand why capsules are, uh, you know, uh, superior for a lot of these formulas, but, you know, walk us through the benefits of doing a capsule system with something like retinol or vitamin C. Yeah. So I think the easiest way to look at it um, is when you have a vitamin C, be it a serum or a cream or retinol serum or cream, um, the second that you open traditional packaging, even airless packaging, and I put that in quotations. Um, so even airless packaging, the second that you open that you start losing potency. So the clock starts ticking on that product. Um, because when air hits it, it causes an active ingredient like a vitamin C to start oxidizing, um, which is just a, a nice way of saying that it starts to turn or lose potency, potency and efficacy for your skin. So you're not reaping all the benefits of, you know, let's say it's marked as 20% vitamin C serum and, you know, it's, it's in a dropper, you open that, like that's not 20% anymore. After, like the second that you open that, right? So that starts degrading really significantly. And you know, for a lot of these active products, they're expensive, right? Ours, you know, and we're a premium brand. And so we understand that side of it also. Um, so 
it's an investment. We want you to get the most bang for your buck, right? We want you to reap the most benefits that you can. And so a capsule delivery of that because it's opaque, because there's no, you know, sun that's getting in there. Um, it's just, it's, it's a really optimal delivery system for it. And the single dose too, you know, it's, you're not, you're just getting the amount of product that you need for your skin. I think it's so easy to go overboard, especially with things like retinol. And so when you're providing somebody, you know, the perfect amount, that's not going to irritate their skin. I, you know, it's a, it's certainly an excellent way to educate people, you know, like, Hey, this is actually the amount you need. Yeah, it's great. And that's, you know, dosing is, it was tricky for us to get the right amount because people have different size faces. And, you know, so we landed on what felt like the right size for most. Um, and, but, but that is a really, it's a, it's a really good point that you bring up. And I think also something that our consumers love a lot, our customers love a lot is the, um, you don't have to guess if I'm putting too much on my face because a lot of the irritation that people get from actives, myself included, even when I was formulating, was I was just globbing too much on my face, <laughs> you know, and I'd be like, oh, my God, it's the Listerine effect. Like my face feels like it's burning off. So that must mean it's working. And pro tip, that does not mean it's working. It's just damaging your skin barrier. So, yeah, I think we could go on a tangent about this forever. <laughs> I mean, the skin barrier is my favorite topic, which actually uh, brings me to uh, formulation. Um, you know, you you mentioned that you start this development process formulation first, right? And you go from there. So I'm very curious about uh, how you craft a formula and, you know, how the wheels turn when you go about doing that. And, uh, you know, I hinted at barrier because I uh, have been using the ceramide booster, which I love, and I use it every day. So, and that one is for the barrier. So I feel like this is a perfect segue to get into your formulations. Um, walk me through that process. I love hearing how people formulate products. I just like, it's one of my favorite stuff, like topics. Love that. Um, well, I love to hear that you're using the ceramide every day because it, it has become one of my just even if I didn't make it, I would be reaching for this most days. So um, yeah, really exciting to hear that. Um, for yeah, but when it comes to formulation for me, I um, for folks that don't understand product development, I like to frame myself and my role as kind of being the director of a film and then like the chemist um kind of being the actor that's executing my vision uh i definitely can write a rough formula of the stage in the game but i would never call myself a chemist because i could also burn something up i don't know like we we don't know what i'm capable of there um but when it comes to product development for me it's it's such a creative process um and I love that about it. And I don't think I realized until I started Common Air fully how creative that part of the process is, um, which is, you know, so fun. Uh, but I like to to focus in on a problem, right? And oftentimes I'm solving problems for those that are kind of like in my own demographic um, for me, I, you know, and for myself. And I think that m maybe sounds really cheesy or funny, but 
it's true. If I, if I don't want to reach for a product authentically, why the heck am I going to put that out in the world? Um, and we also listen to a lot of community feedback. Um, and I kind of like take all of that in with my own intuition. I mean, I'm constantly consuming like trend reports and talking to other like formulator friends and chemists about like innovative new ingredients. And, you know, sometimes that'll actually spark an idea for a product because it's like, oh, there's this new like viscosity increasing agent that's like getting to the market and it's hyper clean and all these great things around it and all this great data around it. And I'm like, that's really cool. How can we make like a cool texture of XYZ um, product you know, that meets kind of consumer demand? And so it, it kind of depends on each product, but um, yeah, a lot of it is just leaning into to new innovation that's available in market and figuring out a way to to bring that to the end consumer in a really fun and exciting way. Okay, so speaking of innovation, uh, what are some things that are on the horizon that excite you? You know, um, without sharing anything that you're not allowed to share, but <laughs> you know, what what piques your interest in the future? There are a lot of things that pique my interest in the future. On the packaging front, I, I'm very encouraged to see um, a lot of companies doing right by putting biodegradability testing and that sort of thing behind new innovative packaging materials. So that to me is super exciting. I think a lot of that data is still not fully baked enough for me to like place a bet on it, but it's really encouraging to see that shift happening. Um, and you know, any, and it's really nice when that is happening with like a smaller brand or startup, uh, because you know, that, you know, as that goes on and as those um, testing results and claims come in, um, that's always going to funnel up to the big guys where that's gonna, we're going to see the biggest impact, right, in the industry when the big guys buy in in that way. Um, you know, and then I think outside of just like ingredient trends, because there's so many right now that feel exciting to me. Um, and I love this kind of like merging that's happening between wellness and beauty um, and seeing like uh, ingestibles uh, make their way into skincare in a, in a way that I don't think we've seen for at least a little while in the industry. Um, so that to me feels really interesting. Um, but outside of that, you know, I think I love to continue to see this shift towards more inclusivity, um, including the way that we look at clinical trials. Um, and, you know, that to me, that's something that we've like really staked a flag in uh, ourselves. Oh, interesting. Can you explain that more? Okay, so for clinical trials, you'll have the Fitzpatrick scale uh, of one to six of skin tones, and one will be your fairest, six will be your deepest. And oftentimes, when you see uh, clinical trials from brands, um, and I would say even up to three years ago, three, four years ago, the default was f from folks that um, structure these studies the default of the skin tones tended to be uh, your three or fours being the deepest skin tones that a lot of these uh, formulas were tested on. Um, so that's excluding half to, you know, about half of um, folks that actually exist out in the world. And that means that all of those studies done like, okay, maybe the product worked really well for them. Did it work for folks that were on this end? question mark. Also, and to me, the most important thing is it's safe for folks on this end of the spectrum. 
And that's the question mark. Um, and I also had that aha moment when I was like in development. This was, you know, a little before Carrie and I met. Um, and I was, again, I won't disclose what brand this was, but I was working with a brand and it was, it was an active like uh, moisturizer. And I look around the room and I'm looking at their team and I realize I'm the only person of color that's testing this. And like my skin tone, depending on like summer, winter, you know, kind of probably falls somewhere between like a three to a four. And that was jarring to me to think about like, we're not seeing if anyone that looks any different than me is able to use this safely and if it's going to work well for them. Um, and it, you know, and it was, and it wasn't even an intentional thing that I was the one that was testing it. It was, I just happened to be there. I happened to be the one that was in that role. You know what I mean? Um, and so, and I think that kind of sums up the way clinical trials have been conducted for a long, long time. Um, and so when we started the clinical trials for vitamin C, because that was our first formula to market, um, we had a lot of learnings and we had to push back launch. Um, I want to say maybe a month because it took longer to enroll participants that met the criteria that was truly inclusive. And, you know, and I love the lab that we partnered with citrus labs, like shout out to them because I think they're amazing. Um, but it took longer because again, the system itself is just, it's a little broken and that they just didn't have those people, um, kind of in their database already, because these were not people that historically had been contacted to participate in these kinds of trials. So yeah, it's, um, again, and so that sounds like very dismal and whatnot, but it is really exciting and encouraging to see that in recent years that has certainly shifted. Um, and, you know, I think like our trials for retinol were some of the most inclusive retinol trials that have been conducted, um, which is a huge source of pride for me. Yes. Um, and I mean, we worked hard to make sure that we enrolled the right participants, you know, we, we did, we did what we had to do. Um, and it's no easy feat, but it, it's, it's really important. And I think a misconception that folks have is that, oh, if it's, if it's something that's like marketed for, or even designed for on a product level for, um, someone with deeper skin or women of color, people of color, does that mean it'll work for me? And it means that it's going to work even better for you and be even safer for you because it has been tested on everyone. Yeah. I think that is, um, I mean, such an important point. And it's something that we certainly don't think enough about in the BD industry. Um, and it's really important to get a wide range of people to to try and test your products for safety. Um, I mean, just really commendable work. That's really impressive that, you know, you, you took that extra step there because I know that clinicals aren't easy in general. And then to put on that extra layer there of, you know, making sure that it's safe for truly everybody is, I mean, brava, that's pretty cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a, it is what's a big source of pride for us to be like, we did that, that's cool. It should be. It should be a big source of pride. That's really cool. Um, okay. You are somebody who has been in the industry, uh, you know, like you said, for 10 years. And I want to ask you, you know, what sort of changes have you seen in the industry over this past decade? And, you know, what 
what do you wish would still change? Like what, what still needs to be uh, fixed? Yeah. I mean, I've seen so many changes. I sh- I'm sure you have too. Like you've, you've been on your side of the industry for a while also. And, um, you know, I think the most exciting changes I've seen and continue to see on the ingredient side of things is just the level of innovation and the fact that we don't have to use some of these conventional ingredients anymore. It's like, it's just, we don't have to. And it's exciting to see even conventional brands who are not, you know, rebranding to be clean or anything, but are just also saying like, holy crap, like the efficacy is there. Like, why don't we reach for this ingredient instead of this like other thing that we had been using historically. Um, And so I think that shift has been really great. I think there's still like leaps and bounds to be made, especially on, um, I would say kind of like the SPF side of things. Um, And in color, I think there's still a lot of room for improvement there. But the consumer demand is there. So I'm excited to see the industry catch up to it. Um, and then on the packaging front also, you know, uh, just the fact that you and I are having this conversation, the fact that Common Air exists as a brand, um, at all that has such a root in sustainability around packaging. And, you know, I already kind of spoke to innovation there. I think that shift in the conversation has been really interesting because we all know like packaging catches the eye. It draws the eye and it's what, um, it's kind of the first thing that you see if you're wanting to buy something. Um, and so it's it's nice to know that people are not having to sacrifice as much to, to be sustainable or to just make like, you know, slightly better choices. Um, and it, and it looks and as I don't know, I think a stereotypical way of really crunchy and granola and maybe I got this at whole foods and like a negative way, like things don't look like that anymore. Like sustainability does not have to mean that anymore. And so, uh, that to me is really exciting. But again, I do think we have a long way to go. Um, that still gives me a pit in my stomach, though. The packaging part does, because I'm just waiting for the big guys to catch up to consumer demand a little bit more, like a little bit faster there. Um, and then, you know, we talked about inclusivity. I think um, I love the way that the conversation has shifted in recent years. Um the way beauty campaigns even look different, the way that I can see myself represented in these campaigns where I never really did before. Um, And obviously I think there's still strides to be made there, but all all of this, I'm putting a very positive spin on it, but all of it feels like very encouraging to see. And these are major shifts that I've noticed uh, over my time in the industry. Yeah. I, you know, I I agree with everything you just said. I really do. Um, We share a lot of overlap in our beliefs about the beauty industry. Um, I I quickly just want to compliment you, though, on the outer packaging. You know, you said that um, packaging doesn't have to be uh, so crunchy, et cetera, and it can be luxe and beautiful. And I I love the floral prints on your secondary packaging. I, I wrote about it recently, and I was like, I would like, if you guys ever sold wallpaper, I would like wallpaper my house with it. Like, it's so beautiful. It's just like this really beautiful floral print. I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) I love that. No, I remember reading that and you are maybe like the third person, especially with the ceramide launch that said something similar of like, why don't you make this a print or something I can, you know, put in my house in some way. I'm like, oh, that's so flattering. Repurpose your current packaging though. And then we'll talk about it. Yeah. No, but for me, like for us in packaging, when um, 
you know, again, I think I talked already about being like really disenchanted with beauty, blah, blah, blah. But things aesthetically also just all looked really the same. Everything was super minimal. And I knew, you know, when we started designing the brand, we did an iteration like that. I was like, this is boring. (laughs) This is not, this isn't it. Like this doesn't feel like a self-expression of, you know, the brand that I want to put out in the world. I want it. I want everything to feel kind of like an heirloom or keepsake and, you know, and um, that's kind of the little love notes that we throw into, into the packaging design. Yeah, I uh, just uh, uh, go off what you were just saying. I completely agree. I mean, listen, I, I I don't think that there's anything wrong with minimalist packaging. And in fact, uh, there's minimalist packaging out there that I'm obsessed with and I love and I think is so well done. But it's just like when everything is that very minimalist packaging, I just think we lose some of the spark. Like I'm ready for some creativity to come back into the beauty industry. Like I'm ready for playful packaging and I'm ready for just like some of that joy and color again. I'm, I don't know. It's just when everything is just like the same, like muted colors, it just, gosh, it just, it, it makes your cabinet look so stale. It does. I like to look at my vanity or like my, you know, yeah, my bathroom cabinet. I want it to be colorful. I want it to look like a rainbow. And it doesn't necessarily look like that because not all the products I use have the same like, you know, design aesthetic that we do. Um, And it's also, you know, I think it's interesting because I think minimalism signals luxury. And so we also kind of wanted to up in that a little bit and be like, oh, but maximalism can signal luxury also. Um, and yeah, that was, that was the approach we took there. That's cool. Okay. So the last thing I wanted to chat with you about is what you do in your own routine. So we will start with your beauty routine. Um, you know, what is your skincare, hair care and makeup, uh, you know, go-tos? Yeah. So for skincare, Um, I have always loved and preferred an oil-based cleanser over a gel one. I tend to have like drier skin and they just tend to dry me out a lot. So I love the Eminence Organic Stone Crop Cleansing Oil. I've been using it for a hundred years and obsessed. It's still my favorite and it smells amazing. Um, And then of course I'm using like my common air serums. Like I said, I I use the um, new ceramide that we just launched. So I've had it for quite a while now. Uh, I use that most days uh, and I use our retinol at night. Um, It's the only retinol my skin will tolerate. Um, And then moisturizers. I'm, I'm not as loyal to moisturizers. I'm going to be honest. I like to try a lot of different ones, Um, but I do like texturally love like a heavier, thicker, uh, like creamier one and then SPF, which is the most important stuff. I love the Le Prunier SPF. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And on my, you know, I can't vouch for deeper skin tones than mine, but even in summer when I was like really tan, it, it didn't leave a white cast. And for that to happen with like a mineral sunscreen is unheard of. So I, I see its praises all the time. I love that stuff. Um, and hair, I've really been loving the Squigs Beauty hair oil. Um, I'm a big proponent of oiling your hair. I do like hot oil treatments. Also, one of my grandmothers like taught me to do that from a very young age. And so I like to use that hair oil. Um, what else? Makeup. I'm, I mean, I try so much makeup all the time. Like I'm a color cosmetics, just like queen, which is interesting because I don't think we'll ever get into color. It's too complicated. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I do, I love. That's understandable. It is really complicated. 
It's really complicated. I love the Minori Beauty Cream Blush. Um, it's clean. The shade Scarlet, I think, is the most universally flattering shade ever. Um, and I wear that most days. I have it on today. And then um, the Westman Atelier Highlighter and Hector. Like, those two things, only things I need on my face. Like, obsessed with both of those. Um yeah, I don't. Do I, I mean, skip any that's areas? no. That's <laughs> that's a good routine. Uh, name checked a lot of brands that I love as well. Um, okay, and then we'll get into your well-being routine. Um, so, you know, we believe that everything is connected. Um, so, you know, how how much you sleep you get, and how you take care of your mental health, and. Uh, how you take care of your body, you know, all of those things, they, they show up on your face and they, uh, you know, they can affect uh, your beauty routine as well. So I love asking people how they take care of themselves in general. Yeah, I think for me, number one is my therapist. I think mental health is, is of paramount importance um, for everyone. And yeah, so therapy to me is like, it's my weekly crying session. It's my weekly session of, of anything that I need. And, and so I think that's key for all the other things. Um, you know, when it comes to movement, I've been really into somatic like stretching and um, these days. And I found that make a world of difference. And just like even like areas I'm getting older, my knees like creak a little bit if I'm like wearing heels too much. Um, so though that stretching just for like gentle daily movement is really great. It's been really raining in, in LA. I like to run also. Um, so I haven't been able to do a lot of that lately. But the, the stretching helps, you know, maintain movement for me. Um, and, you know, I'm a big proponent of like ingestibles and the way that they make sense. I like to get a lot of nutrients that I can from just like nutrient dense foods. Um, but I, you know, like my bone broth every morning kind of thing. I feel like that makes a big difference. And that's made a big difference since I incorporated that like years, like maybe a few years ago into my morning routine. Uh, so just like a really quality bone broth, um, you know, so many benefits there. That's kind of wellness for me. All right. Well, pretty good routine. I love the therapist point. <laughs> Therapy is skincare. <laughs> I'm a big believer in that. Therapy is skincare. The salty tears. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Angela, this was so fun. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I had such a blast catching up with you and picking your brain a little bit. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. For more beauty content from the team at MindBuddyGreen, you can always read along with our content at mindbuddygreen.com, follow us on social media, and of course, tune into next week's episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you ever want to reach out with questions or insights or thoughts, you can find me on Instagram at Alex underscore Blair underscore. Thanks so much for your time.